This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. He's been called a libertine, a Casanova, and a Lothario. But who exactly is this legendary seducer? On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Opera's Don Giovanni. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Based on the legends of Don Juan, Mozart's Don Giovanni masterfully weaves together comedy and serious drama. It premiered in Prague in 1787, and it has been performed all over the world ever since. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, researcher and music librarian Deirdre Bird takes a look at the music and history of Mozart's famous rake.
The opening to Mozart's opera Don Giovanni is one of the most recognizable overtures in all opera. Essays, books, and analyses innumerable have been written on the two minutes of music we just heard, and that was only one-third of the actual overture. You see, Mozart had to make an impact right from the very start, because his Don Giovanni was just another entry into the copious and growing canon of the legend of Don Juan. That's right. Don Giovanni is just the Italianized version of the name Don Juan, the infamous lover of Seville. Like the characters Ulysses, Faust, and King Arthur, Don Juan outgrew the confines of traditional narrative and left his indelible mark on every century since his conception in the early 1600s. With such a loaded personage, the question becomes, what do we talk about when we talk about Don Juan? Where do we even begin? Should we start by discussing the original play of the 1630s or Moliere's radically secular Don Juan of 1665? What about Lord Byron's 19th century Don Juan, hailed as the most important English poem between Milton's Paradise Lost and William Wordsworth's Prelude? For the more contemporary-minded, there's George Bernard Shaw's 20th century Man and Superman, with its often independently performed third act, Don Juan in Hell. Or we could skip the stage altogether and head for the psychoanalyst's couch. Austrian psychoanalyst Otto Rank published his influential study on the Don Juan legend in 1924, which promptly led to Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung's coinage of Don Juanism, or Don Juan syndrome, a non-clinical term for a ubiquitous affliction. Given the subject's potential for infinite interpretations in combination with Mozart's compositional genius, it's no wonder Sigmund Freud wrote of Don Giovanni as his favorite opera of all time. The 2018-2019 season premiere of Don Giovanni will mark the Metropolitan Opera House's 565th performance of Mozart's classic since its New York debut over a century ago in 1883. According to recent statistics compiled by OperaBase, the foremost organizer of operatic performance data, Don Giovanni ranks as the third most frequently performed Mozart opera worldwide behind The Magic Flute and The Marriage of Figaro. Stateside at the Met, Don Giovanni clocks in as the 15th most frequently performed opera overall, but reigns supreme as New York's most popular opera by Mozart, beating out runner-up The Marriage of Figaro by a long shot. In a city as well known for its neurotics as its skyscrapers, it's not a surprise we are drawn to a story featuring a psychopathic narcissist. A 21st century recasting of Don Juan as a New Yorker wouldn't raise any eyebrows here. Back in late 18th century Bohemia, the largest region of the current-day Czech Republic, Mozart and his Italian librettist Lorenzo de Ponte were basking in the glow of their massively successful 1786 Prague production of Le Nozze de Figaro, or The Marriage of Figaro. Le Nozze is based on the second installment of Frenchman Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais's controversial set of plays known as the Figaro Trilogy. Beaumarchais' work was so politically offensive that King Louis XV of France personally banned any public performances following a private viewing. It took the playwright nearly six years of revisions and appeals before The Barber of Seville was finally staged in 1784 to monumental success. There have been many operatic iterations of all three works in Beaumarchais' trilogy, but Mozart's and Giacchino Rossini's adaptations are the best known today. 
In addition to its intrinsic brilliance, Rossini's 1816 The Barber of Seville has had an unfair promotional advantage by featuring in American cartoons. His Figaro has been an animated mainstay since the 1950s, from Bugs Bunny to SpongeBob SquarePants. Mozart's and De Ponte's Figaro premiered to modest success in Vienna, the conservative capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it was an incomparable triumph in Prague. In a letter dated January 15, 1787, Mozart wrote his pupil and friend Gottfried von Jochen, Here they talk about nothing but Figaro. Nothing is played, sung, or whistled but Figaro. No opera is drawing like Figaro. Nothing, nothing but Figaro. It was so immensely popular that Mozart was immediately contracted to write a new opera, Don Giovanni, for the Prague Estates Theatre the following year. The late 18th century came with its own peculiar set of social and commercial laws which held a good deal of influence over public works of art such as opera. In Mozart's case, both he and his family had the advantage of belonging to a higher social strata than did the likes of Beethoven or Haydn. Back when celebrity existed in relative proportion to talent, Mozart's fame as a child prodigy brought his family into proximity with the nobility. He was a native of Salzburg, Austria, and therefore a gleaming, German-speaking ornament of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. German was the language of the ruling classes, and there was a definite linguistic pecking order in the non-German-speaking regions of the Austrian Empire. Those who did not speak German were automatically relegated to a lower social position. Though Mozart reveled in his many successes in Prague, the lukewarm receptions he received in Vienna, the center of his world, always stung just a bit. At the age of six, young Mozart and his 11-year-old sister began a European tour as a pair of child prodigies. He had an audience with the Empress Maria Theresa and the future Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, who was only two months his senior. Royal introductions were promptly followed by extensive travels through Paris, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and London, where he was advertised as the most amazing genius that has appeared in any age, surpassing all understanding or all imagination. In spite of his role as a traveling showpiece, these early experiences brought the Mozart family into regular contact with elite forms of entertainment masquerade balls, carnival celebrations, and, most importantly, the theater. From his first exposure to the stage as a child, Mozart was completely enraptured with theater both spoken and sung. His father wrote of his eight-year-old to a family friend, Wilst on tour, Not a day passes without Wolfgang talking at least 30 times of Salzburg. Now he always has an opera in his head that he wants to produce there with several young people. It was a preoccupation that held him in its grip until the end of his life. Thankfully for us, Mozart's affinity for the dramatic led to some of opera's most exhilarating creations. However, in the case of his friends and peers, this excessive passion often manifested in annoying quirks. One such colleague named Wenzel Svoboda, an orchestral musician hired for the premiere of Don Giovanni, recounted years later that Mozart took to speaking in musical recitativo at all times, even in public. Recitativos are the semi-spoken, semi-sung parts of an opera that are used to explain narrative details and plot twists that might take too long to sing. There were two primary types of recitative in Mozart's time, 
one entering into popular fashion and the other indicative of an earlier era, and Don Giovanni employs them both. Recitativo secco, or dry recitative, is so called because the unstructured rhythm adheres to normal speech patterns and the singer is accompanied by the bare minimum in music, basso continuo, or figured bass. The sound appears much thinner because only the root notes of chords are played and, commonly, a single instrument sounds out the rest of the notes needed to complete a chord. In the example we are about to hear, Mozart uses a very dry accompaniment, a single harpsichord. In Act One, Scene Two of Don Giovanni, three of the principal characters, Don Giovanni, his servant Leporello, and Donna Elvira, run into one another by chance on the streets of Seville. Seeing a beautiful young woman in the distance, Don Giovanni calls out to her, Signorina, Signorina, only to his horror to find out that she is the very woman he had seduced, proposed to, and jilted only three days earlier in another town. Not surprisingly, she is fuming and has come to Seville to find him. The recitative opens with Donna Elvira asking, Qui est là? Who is there? Mozart employs a second type of recitative in Don Giovanni called recitativo accompagnato, or accompanied recitative, which utilizes the entire orchestra and better suits situations of emotional intensity. During the Romantic era, composers switched almost exclusively to accompanied recitative and continued to push and blur the technique's boundaries all the way through the end of the 19th century. Let's listen to how Mozart uses this style of recitative to set up one of Donna Elvira's best-known arias from Act Two, Scene Two. In the recitative leading up to the aria, the orchestra's turbulent interjections punctuate Donna Elvira's angry outbursts. They slowly become more lyrical as Donna Elvira shifts from the aggressive position of I already feel the fatal thunderbolt falling on his head to the forgiving, but if I realize he is in jeopardy, my heart starts throbbing for him. Up until this point, as we will hear later in the context of the full plot, Donna Elvira gives the impression of a one-dimensional character hell-bent on revenge. Here, aided by recitative, Mozart lays bare the inner conflict tearing Elvira apart and exposes the type of emotional damage Don Giovanni's antics inflict on his victims. Furious that she's allowed herself to fall for a notorious lecher, she is nevertheless in love with him and can't help feeling remorse at Don Giovanni's fate. <laughs> 
The music mirrors Donna Elvira's turmoil, oscillating from the tonic to the dominant, into the relative minor and back, while the melodic phrases alternate between long and confident, or broken and suggestive of sobbing.
Did you hear how closely recitative resembles everyday speech? While a very important and effective dramatic technique, I think we can agree that it's best kept on the stage. By the late 18th century, opera was no longer being created solely for the aristocracy, and this change began to influence what was performed. If the show wasn't sponsored by the state or financed privately, the theater had to rely on ticket sales. In Prague, this meant that whatever was on stage had to appeal to both the almond milk drinking, German speaking elite and the Czech speaking, beer favoring middling classes. No one knows for certain who chose Don Juan as the topic of Mozart's Prague Commission, but the story's massively popular appeal and regular place in the repertoire, especially by the type of itinerant Italian opera troupe employed for this premiere, practically guaranteed commercial success. The renowned German intellectual and statesman Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was stunned by the enduring popularity of the legend. After attending a 1787 Don Juan opera in Rome, he wrote, No one could live until he saw Don Juan roasting in hell and the commendatore as a blessed spirit ascend to heaven. Where did a story of such enduring popularity and influence come from? Unfortunately, we don't have access to an original, only a rough compilation of what scholars think the first Don Juan play might have looked like. The surviving evidence consists of two conflicting versions of questionable origin. One of the versions was published in 1630 as El Berlador de Sevilla, as part of a collection and attributed to the Spanish monk Tirso de Molina. The other, entitled Tan Largo Melo Fias, was published alone, undated, and attributed to Don Pedro Calderon. Both versions agree on the names of all the characters and the general plot outline, and share enough lines that it is clear that they are two versions of the same play. Though no one knows definitively who wrote the original, authorities on the matter dismiss Calderon as a source and ascribe authorship solely to Tirso de Molina. They believe he wrote the work sometime between 1616 and 1625. The story of Don Juan originates in the folklore of Europe, with similar narratives cropping up as far away as Iceland. The backbone of the narrative is this. A young man invites a dead man, often a skeleton or a skull, to supper. The dead man shows up and returns the invitation. Endings of the fable differ, but they always take one of three paths. Either the young man narrowly escapes with a newfound respect for the dead, Occasionally he dies of fright on the spot, or he repents and joins a religious order. The dual invitation legend is native to Europe, but the idea of a supernatural statue returning to dispatch justice, as distinct from human remains, is specific to the Iberian Peninsula. As unique as the statue is to the Spanish legend of Don Juan, the character of Don Juan himself grew out of a fairly popular character type, the 17th century was full of debauched young aristocrats, both in theater and real life, but the idea of the burlador, or one who lives to deceive, introduced a new version of toxic masculinity. Some researchers suggest that the drama was probably conceived in reverse. That is, the playwright started with the Spanish version of the double invitation fable and then worked backwards to form a character deserving of eternal damnation. 
The original play opens, as it does in both Moliere's Don Juan and Mozart's Don Giovanni, with a scene involving a deceived woman. Before the curtain is up, Don Juan has already played his first trick. This kind of preemptive action was a novel and exhilarating dramatic technique when it first debuted. Before a single line is spoken, the audience is swept into the fast-paced obstacle course of Don Juan's deceptions, getaways, and pursuers. Out of the hundreds of Don Juan plays, the two most influential stage adaptations sandwich Mozart's opera chronologically, and though thematic opposites were emblematic of their respective generations. Molière, the undisputed master of the French stage, wrote his Don Juan, Le Festin de Pierre, or Don Juan and the Feast with the Statue, in 1665. Penned a mere 30 to 40 years after Tirso de Molina's, Molière created a thoroughly cosmopolitan version out of the somewhat primitive Don Juan of the original. His variation features Don Juan as a self-proclaimed atheist who ruthlessly castigates all aspects of French society. The feast with the statue demonstrates Molière's genius at its most prescient. Though censored throughout the 17th century, his play scrutinizes hypocrisy with such precision that his critiques transcend generational mores. After Mozart, José Zaria's play, entitled Don Juan Tenorio, and subtitled A Religious Fantasy Drama in Two Parts, is a cautionary spiritual tale. Zaria's version, a combination of the original legend and parts of Alexandre Dumas' 1836 Don Juan de Marana, is known as the longest-running play in Spanish history. A staple of the All Saints' Day repertoire, Don Juan Tenorio has been performed yearly across Spain for more than a century. Written nearly 60 years after Don Giovanni, Don Juan Tenorio's plot centers on an engaged Don Juan who, in order to fulfill his inventory of sexual conquests, seeks to deflower a young woman in the process of becoming a nun. The story concludes with Don Juan's eventual repentance, the reassertion of Catholic faith, and his acceptance into heaven. In a virtual sea of Don Juan plays, poems, ballets, and operas, what sets Mozart's Don Giovanni apart as the non-parel of Don Juandom? The answer relies entirely on the music. Mozart's supreme dramatic intuition, combined with his unmatched capacity for musical expression, liberates the Don Juan legend from the overt moralization of the preceding versions. The opera isn't devoid of moral significance, for Mozart shared in and was influenced by the Enlightenment ideals of his age. His genius as a composer permitted a musical encoding of the Enlightenment's concern with liberty and the natural order. Don Giovanni is not a religious tale, it isn't wholly a social critique, and the characters, though they may share some similarities, are not vessels for the personal views of the creators. As we will discuss, in spite of music's ostensibly ambiguous nature, Mozart composes a guiding framework imbued with the morals and concerns of his generation. Mozart's interest, first and foremost, was in dramatic effect. Beating theatergoers over the head with the moral of a story might be effective, but it's certainly not dramatic. Don Giovanni, anticipating the type of realism that would not fully develop until the late 19th century, presents its characters and situations without comment, or so it seems.
Mozart's and de Ponte's opera, though following a well-trod storyline, doesn't appear to push any particular agenda or condemn any of its characters too harshly. Throughout the course of the action, we can find ourselves rooting just as easily for the success of the dastardly Don Giovanni as we can empathize with his victims. The prevailing pressure to feel one way or another, the crux of the other Don Juan plays, is conspicuously absent. Mozart's opera is effective because he permits us to feel we are in control of the opinions we form as the drama unfolds. In actuality, the music, as a syntactic dramatic force, helps shape our perceptions. Yet we are never really in control. Mozart is. Music, though not capable of defining characters and situations with the same complexity of words, can imitate characteristics and feelings, an autonomous arrangement of sound, syntactic but not semantic. We might find ourselves amused by Don Giovanni's antics, but the music associated with his character ensures that no one leaves the theater convinced of his innocence. Mozart's score guarantees that we too are seduced along with Don Giovanni's victims, deceived like their male partners, and cognizant of the supernatural darkness that opens and closes the work. Mozart manages to both imitate and arouse our emotions, effectively rendering in music the dramatic representation so overt in the other Don Juan works. The best part is, learning how this feat is accomplished only adds to our sense of wonder and enjoyment. Let's start at the beginning, or we could just as well say the ending. As was customary, operatic overtures were often composed last. In the case of Mozart's Don Giovanni, the orchestra actually sight-read the overture on opening night. Generally perceived as superfluous filler music, a reminder that the performance was about to begin, overtures in the late 17th and early 18th centuries were divorced from the content and meaning of the actual opera to follow. Writing the overture last began to take on a special significance when composers introduced slices of material from the opera within the overture, the 18th century version of coming attractions. Don Giovanni changed this relationship forever. We open this podcast with the first two minutes of the Don Giovanni overture, which, as with Mozart's Requiem, starts out in bone-chilling D minor. This is the music of the stone guest, who returns, along with this music, at the very end of the opera to drag Don Giovanni to his fate. This is no mere preview. It's an integral part of the narrative. Mozart single-handedly catapulted the overture into a position of supreme dramatic importance. The beginning of the overture portends doom for our protagonist, but the second half introduces the present and leaps into the fast-paced parallel key of D major. And with that, we're ready for Don Giovanni's first trick.
Don Giovanni was Mozart's second collaboration with Italian librettist Lorenzo da Ponte. Born into a Jewish family, da Ponte became an ordained priest and friend of Casanova. He also shared more than a few characteristics with the rakish Don Giovanni. Fleeing debt, bankruptcy, and scandal in Europe, da Ponte eventually moved to America, where he helped expand the Italian language program at Columbia University. Though he spent his later years as a grocer in Elizabeth, New Jersey, da Ponte was laid to rest at the age of 89 in Calvary Cemetery in Sunnyside, Queens. Who'd have thought Mozart's librettist would end up a New Yorker? Back in 1787, da Ponte was one of the most popular librettists in Europe. At the time he was assigned Don Giovanni, the poet was also working on two other libretti, one for Salieri and another for Soler. Da Ponte subtitled Don Giovanni a drama giocoso, or a jokey drama, and adapted a previously existing libretto to suit the composer's plans. The parallel minor and major keys of the overture emphasize the duality of the subtitle and establishes the duality of the action to follow. When the opera begins, audiences are introduced to Don Giovanni's servant Leporello. In contrast to his master's compulsive hedonism, Leporello is a fairly down-to-earth character who serves as Don Giovanni's disembodied and powerless conscience. Just as he starts to complain aloud that his master's tricks are becoming too risky, Donna Anna's screams cut him off. As we are soon to discover, Don Giovanni has crept into the room of a noblewoman disguised as her fiancé, but was discovered mid-ruse. Donna Anna's father, the commendatore, hastens to the scene of the commotion and demands to fight his daughter's attacker. Don Giovanni half-heartedly tries to defuse the confrontation, but ends up mortally wounding his elderly opponent. A shaky Leporello and the self-righteous Don Giovanni flee the scene while Donna Anna convinces her actual fiancé, Don Atavio, to swear revenge on her father's murderer. You might recognize this episode as the central motif from Haruki Murakami's 2017 novel, Killing Commendatore, wherein a depiction of the murder and Mozart's opera as a whole provide the symbols of the narrative. Act 1, Scene 2 takes place the next day and features the same scene we discussed earlier as an example of recitative with Donna Elvira. After mistaking his former lover for a new potential conquest, Don Giovanni realizes his mistake and slips away. Leporello distracts Donna Elvira until his master makes his getaway and, in a misguided attempt to comfort her, he launches into the catalog aria. Leporello keeps an active record of his master's seductions. In Italy, 640. In Germany, 231. 100 in France, and in Turkey, 91. But in Spain, there are already 1,003. Lasciate che vada, e di non merda che su di lui pensiate. Scellerato mi ingannò, e tradì. Consolatevi, non siete voi, non poste e non sarete, né la prima né l'ultima. Guardate. Questo non picciol libro è tutto pieno dei nomi di sue belle. Ogni villa, ogni borgo, ogni paese è testimone di sue donne spenturese. 
Madonna Il catalogo è questo delle belle che amò il padron mio Un catalogo è che ho fatto io Osservate, leggete con me Osservate, leggete con me In Italia 640 In Albania 231 Cento in Francia, in Turchia 91 Ma in Ispania Ma in Ispania Sono già mille tre Mille tre Mille tre Compra queste contadine Cameriere cittadine Ma contesse e baronesse Marchesine, principesse e bambone, ogni grado, ogni forma, ogni età, ogni forma, ogni età. In Italia, 640. Make no mistake, Don Giovanni, in spite of his reputation, does not love women. He is profoundly cruel and, as the catalogue aria makes abundantly clear, he regards his conquests as nothing more than numbers in Leporello's book. Don Giovanni systematically strips each woman of her identity and uses them to feed his ravenous ego. It does us well to remember that, even though the opera strikes an even balance between humor and consequence, the real-life fate of an abandoned woman was serious business in the 18th century. Suicide was oftentimes seen as the best option. In an unusual but ingenious dramatic move, Mozart withholds any self-reflective arias from the title character. The ultimate narcissist, Don Giovanni, is nothing more than an empty shell. He has no regard for anyone besides himself and, like a child, he submits entirely to all of his desires. Solo arias can act as a window into a character's emotional universe. But in the case of a narcissist, any introspection would play out as misleading and, worst of all, boring. Who wants to learn anything about someone whose only concern is himself? In fact, any time Don Giovanni does sing about feelings, he merely imitates the character with whom he is interacting. With no true personality of his own, Don Giovanni's individual and musical existence depends entirely on the character of others. In Act 1, Scene 3, the Don is up to his old tricks and has set his sights on the young, engaged peasant girl, Zerlina. After distracting her fiancé, Masetto, Don Giovanni tries to woo his new conquest in the duet La Ci Darem La Mano. The ensuing music unfolds with bucolic simplicity, an imitation of Zerlina's limited experience and station, and became one of the opera's biggest hits. La Ci Darem La Mano has been quoted throughout popular art, from Beethoven variations and James Joyce's Ulysses to the Frank Sinatra film It Happened in Brooklyn. Let's listen to Sinatra and Catherine Grayson's expanded version from the 1946 film. La ci darem la mano, la mi dirai di sì. Vedi non è lontano, partiamo ben mio da qui. Vorrei e non vorrei, mi trema un poco il 
cangerò tua sorte Presto non son più forte, non son più forte, non son più forte Vieni, vieni Là ci darem la mano Mi dirai di sì Mi trema un poco il cuore Partiamo ben mio da qui Vieni mio bel Io cangerò la sorte Donna Elvira interrupts the seduction and leads the young girl away from Don Giovanni. Foiled and grumpy, Don Giovanni's plans are further interrupted by the appearance of Donna Anna and Ottavio, who are on the hunt for her father's murderer. They unwittingly attempt to enlist Don Giovanni in their search, but Donna Elvira appears again to admonish him further. He tries to convince both Donna Anna and her fiancé that Donna Elvira is a madwoman. But Don Giovanni's increasingly disturbed behavior spurs Donna Anna's realization of the truth. Oh God, she cries, he is the murderer of my father. Donna Anna urges Ottavio to act immediately. Don Giovanni beats a hasty retreat and the final scene of Act One moves to his estate. The close of Act One takes place amidst the confusion of a masquerade ball. Donna Anna, Ottavio, and Donna Elvira arrive in masks intent on revenge. Meanwhile, Don Giovanni, in his only solo aria, directs Leporello to keep the wine flowing, collect as many girls from the village as possible, and get the dancing started. Don Giovanni rounds up his guests, including the quarreling Zerlina and her fiancé, and kicks off the fete with cries of Viva la Libertà, Long Live Liberty. In the context of the opera, the cry unquestionably applies to sexual freedom. However, 18th century audiences often would take up the chant during performances. Whether it was the dramatic tension of a doomed seduction, the threat of exposure for the three masked guests, 
or Mozart's gloriously climactic score. The audience response to this particular scene left authorities and censors wondering exactly what kind of freedom was being implied. By 1795, Austrian authorities forbade the words liberty, equality, and enlightenment from appearing on stage. Don Giovanni thrives in chaos, and he works hard to establish the perfect environment for his impending seduction of Zerlina. The party is a raucous cross-section of society, from peasants to nobility, and it blurs the boundaries established earlier in the overture. Mozart uses this scene to play on his 18th century audience's sensitivity to social class. He employs a type of musical anarchy that not only generates a sense of confusion essential to plot development, but also serves to criticize the type of license permitted to the nobility. The dance scene begins with the established dance of the elite, an elegant and proper waltz in triple meter. Very soon afterwards, Mozart introduces a contradance, or country dance, in a fast duple meter, an accented two-beat rhythm. On top of those two contrasting styles, he then adds the crude Deutscher, a dance in 3-8 that had just recently come into popular fashion. As musicologist Daniel Hertz points out, the Act One finale features an entire century's worth of dance history. The party is in full swing, and the contrasting rhythmic patterns of the various dances induce a sense of pandemonium. Suddenly, Zerlina's scream echoes from offstage. Don Giovanni has managed to seduce the peasant girl under everyone's noses and has taken her into a secluded area. The guests, including the masked trio of Donna Anna, her fiancé, and Donna Elvira, surround the perpetrator and block his exit. Scrambling desperately for an excuse, Don Giovanni first tries to blame Leporello, but stops short when he realizes he's dealing with his three familiar accusers. He grabs Leporello, pushes through the onlookers, and escapes yet again. Just like Act 1, Act 2 opens with Leporello griping about his boss. In light of his near-death experience, he feels underappreciated and underpaid. Don Giovanni talks him out of leaving, greases his palm, and immediately demands they switch clothes for his next endeavor. Not one for delay, Don Giovanni wants Leporello, disguised as Don Giovanni, to sweet-talk Donna Elvira away from her maid, so that he can start another seduction. Things go according to plan until an angry mob approaches in search of the scoundrel who tried to take advantage of Zerlina. Unrecognizable in servants' clothes, the real Don Giovanni sends the crowd after Leporello. A master of mimicry, Don Giovanni goes beyond the physical impersonation of his lackey and adopts the key of F major from Leporello's first aria. Leporello, 
though amusing in his impersonation of his master, does not match Don Giovanni's musical fluency. The accusatory trio catch up with Leporello and demand justice. Removing his disguise, the beleaguered domestic begs for his life, but quickly ducks away without waiting for an answer. Servant and master find themselves reunited in a graveyard, a spot they both considered a safe haven. Just as the two of them start to recount the night's events, a stone memorial statue interrupts. Your laughter will end before dawn. Appropriately enough, Leporello loses it immediately. The calm and collected Don Giovanni thinks the voice must be a prank, until he recognizes the statue of the commandatore whom he killed just days prior. Invite him to dinner, Don Giovanni calmly commands. A terrified Leporello manages to obey, and the statue nods in consent. The final scene is set in Don Giovanni's dining room, where he is dining alone, save for the company of Leporello and a small orchestra, which plays popular tunes of the day, including some of Mozart's own Le Nozze de Figaro. Donna Elvira reappears and demonstrates that she is the only fully developed character in the opera. No longer determined to make Don Giovanni her husband, Donna Elvira attempts a last-ditch effort to save his soul. Frustrated and unsuccessful, Elvira turns to leave and lets out a scream. Curious, Leporello hurries to investigate and then screams even louder at the sight of the statue in the doorway. This is the musical moment we've all been waiting for. In music, as in life, time is not infinite. When it's borrowed, it must be repaid. Don Giovanni has reached the end of his credit, and the commendatore has come to collect. The D minor of the overture returns, in the words of Nietzsche, to leap out of the wall and shake the listener to his very intestines. There is no single moment in opera more famous or more terrifying. Even Don Giovanni loses his cool. The statue grabs his hand and demands he repent his evil ways. Three times the statue requests, and three times Don Giovanni declines. Your time is up, the statue declares. The ground beneath his feet opens like a hungry mouth, and Giovanni is consumed by his fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, 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 hey,
Though most synopses end right there, Don Giovanni's punishment is the penultimate scene. By today's standards, bookending the opera in the D minor of the overture might feel appropriate, but the dramatic tradition of the 18th century was governed by a different set of expectations. In accordance with the precepts of ancient Greek theater, Restoration-era dramas conclude with a cyclical reestablishment of order. Mozart's method of fulfilling this requirement was brilliant in its simplicity and historic in its influence. The final presto chorus of the opera is introduced by the surviving characters as the world's oldest song, the return to order following a chaotic rupture. Don Giovanni's dismantling of the status quo, manifested physically by the rupture in the ground through which he falls, is demonstrated by the key of D minor. So how does Mozart dispel the audience's sense of disturbance and restore inner peace? By effectively banishing the key of D minor. Those two seconds of music, the tonic restated down an octave, followed by the dominant, also restated down an octave, are all it takes to reorient us in the key of G major and prepare us for a return to moral order. Mozart accomplishes in four notes what a playwright might struggle to indicate with a soliloquy. The music, in combination with the dramatic context it was intended to evoke, infuses this device with a newly explicit function. Look no further than the ultimate musical expression of a return to natural order, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Intimately familiar with Don Giovanni to the extent of having reorchestrated parts of the opera, Beethoven was undoubtedly aware of this technique's power for reorientation and its metaphysical implications. The ninth opens its second movement with a near-rhythmic copy of Mozart's original. And then uses this same restatement of the key throughout the molto vivace to pull listeners from the parallel key of D major back into the primary key of D minor. One could make the case for Beethoven's selection of D minor as the key against which moral order struggles and ultimately triumphs over, arriving at the Ode to Joy in D major. 
This transition could have had its origins in the narrative musical binaries established in Don Giovanni. Not only is Don Giovanni the Don Juan of all Don Juans, but, as E.T.A. Hoffman wrote, the opera of all operas. Mozart's music, his dramatic language of choice, breathed life into a worn-out archetype. He reinterpreted Don Juan as an unrepentant hero of the Enlightenment, with an aesthetic energy and flexibility which affected the impending Romantic era and all ages since. No other modern drama has touched so many species of thought and expression, from the philosophies of Kierkegaard to the paintings of Delacroix, emphasizing, in fact, that a true work of art can speak to any part of the human condition. That was Deirdre Bird talking about Mozart's masterpiece, Don Giovanni. You can catch performances live at the Metropolitan Opera now through April 18th with Peter Mattei and Luca Pizzaroni singing the title character. Visit metopera.org for tickets and info. We'll be back with you next week for an episode on Donizetti's sparkling bel canto comedy, La Fille du Regiment, The Daughter of the Regiment. Until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.